This is Jeffrey Madoff, and welcome to our new podcast called Anything and Everything with my partner, Dan Sullivan. I found generally when I do sessions with the entrepreneurs where I say, when can you say that you got the bug, you know, the entrepreneurial bug? When was it? And it's very, very interesting. There are some exceptions, but I would say that the rule is generally true that it was very early. It would be certainly by 10 years old, they've had, and you've just given me a sort of a model that you have the complete cycle in your mind. You're buying something to stock up and then you're getting customers and then you're providing the product along with a service. I mean, you're paper route, there's a service to it too. Right. But you get the complete cycle and kids who don't become entrepreneurs who aren't motivated in that direction never get the complete circle of how this actually happens. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think there's, for myself, one major factor was that my parents were entrepreneurs. So I heard them discussing business. I heard them discussing daily sales because they had retail stores. The costs You know, I heard all these things growing up, so it wasn't alien to me. And I remember when I went to work at this store when I was in college, it was really interesting because other college students thought that these are college students, thought that somehow we got the clothes for free that we were selling. (laughs) I had no concept that, no, there's a whole supply chain that is being paid along the way. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing to me the naivete Mm -hmm. that was there. And so I think that having parents that were entrepreneurs and my sister owns her own business, that there was a certain foundation that was put down that was kind of by osmosis, if you will. Yeah, well, the same case with me. My father was a farmer and then it failed. Actually, the farm failed. I could make sense of it. I was like 10 or 11 when it failed. And then we moved into a town that had maybe 10, 12,000, northern Ohio, Norwalk, Ohio. And my father retrained himself as a landscaper and then had a really successful career as a landscaper. So he's starting like when he's 50, he's shifting from being a farmer to being a landscaper. I picked up a lot, you know, just by watching him. One, that you could reinvent yourself. That was really a big thing. And it was really great because the landscaping fell so much more into his skill area than the farming did. And what I mean by that, he was really terrific salesperson. And, of course, farming, you know, you go into a market in Cleveland that was the big markets, the big produce markets in Cleveland. And that was twice a week. You had a trip in with the sweet corn or the green beans. But the selling there wasn't really personal. It was, this is the price right now, and this is what we're giving you for your produce. But with the landscaping, it involved designing the project and being in constant contact with the clients. And I was there, and I always admired how good he was with personal relationships. He had a real gift of the gab that I hadn't seen at all on the farm growing up, okay? He was just really tired and worried on the farm, but here he really engaged with people. And I really, really got the idea of how much of the selling as an entrepreneur is a relationship. It's not just a product. It's not just a service. Oh, absolutely. 
so there's a few things in terms of what you just said. One is the term that wasn't used back when your dad made that switch was he pivoted. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he pivoted from farming to landscaping. Yeah. Now, when you look at the essence, it's dealing with the land and trying to have an outcome, whether that outcome is crops or whether that outcome is a certain look with the hedges and the grass and all of that sort of thing. But they were aligned fields, mm -hmm. really, mm -hmm. and even to planting the grass or planting the hedges or whatever, mm -hmm. which is also, you know, it's not so alien. But what his main gift was, was the gift of gab, as you mm -hmm. said. And if you can generate trust, mm -hmm. then you can sell the product or service that you have. And clearly your dad was good at that. And farming, it's interesting because as you were saying, you know, the prices were set. It's the commodities market mm -hmm. on a small scale, mm -hmm. you know, going to market, whatever he had in Cleveland, you know, that was the commodities market. Here's what it gets. And you didn't have much room to negotiate. Yeah. But landscaping, if you brought a certain artfulness to it or whatever, then you could begin to differentiate yourself more mm -hmm. from the others. Yeah. You know, so it's really interesting because I do believe that we set up walls between these different disciplines where if you were able to look beyond the walls, mm -hmm. the similarities are far more aligned than the differences are. And then it's come back to my friend Dan Sullivan. He has a phrase that's called unique ability. Mm -hmm. So what's the unique ability? Mm -hmm. You know, how good of a salesperson do you need to be? Here's how much we're paying per bushel of corn. Yeah. You know, so a wall is set up immediately, whereas with the landscaping, it becomes a different kind of sale. Looking back at the clothing company that you started you know, and I'm comfortable talking about 50 years because I started the coaching, you know, that is continuous since then. So it's 47 years ago. I was a writer with BBDO and I I knew it wasn't going to be a lifetime occupation. I mean, it was good training. The three years with BBDO was really good. But I knew, you know, my heart wouldn't be in it for the long run. And I always had this thought that I could get people to see their future clearly by asking them questions. When I told my mother what I was doing in the 1970s, and she said, well, you were doing that when you were a little kid. You would just sit there and ask adults questions for hours. We had a next-door neighbor, a woman who, when I was seven, she was 78. So this would be 1951. She had been born on the farm, and she had never spent a night anywhere else except the house that she was born in, the house she grew up in, and the house she died in. She had never traveled more than 15 miles in her life. She was born in 1873, something like that. I think that was the year she was born. So you think what she didn't have on the farm, you know, think of all the things. There was no tractors. There was no electricity. There was nothing that was really there in 1950. The feeling I got is it doesn't matter when you're born, life is full. Yeah. I mean, we look back at previous times and we think how empty their lives are. Their lives were just as full as our lives, you know. Well, they're born and it's modern times. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Everything's up to date in Kansas. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we tend to look back and forget that very important perspective. Yeah. <laughs> but That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I told somebody once along those lines, I said, you know, when you get to that future, you're almost to that future, 
It's actually tomorrow. It's actually tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. It's just today when you get to the future. <laughs> so anyway, the thing that I'm getting here, and I'm glad you brought up the unique ability thing, and I'm asking you a question that you maybe haven't really thought through before, but the question here is, yes, it's clothing business, but where's the center of it that leads you over your creative career to where you're thinking about it right now, what was the center of it? Because I'll take you back to a memory that you gave me of creating movies in your basement mm -hmm. and having an audience come in and you give them the full deal. I mean, they'd come in, they'd have something to eat, they'd have something to drink, and it was a good show. So that's a bit different from having a clothing, but something you're carrying through that started you know, with that, and then you have mowing lawns and you have paper roots. What is it? What's at the center of the, all this? You know, I guess, you know, it's an interesting question because I think part of what's at the center is probably control. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do what I wanted to do and make money doing it. Mm -hmm. And so it's probably that is that there's that control that I wanted over my life. Whether that led to financial wealth or not, what was more important to me was that I was doing something that I was engaged with and I was setting the terms for the engagement as opposed to having that set by somebody else and having to fit in and make that something I wanted to do. Well, you're also setting the terms for promotion. Well, right. True. You know, based on the success of the business. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You weren't going to have to ask somebody for a raise. That's right. You were going to create the raise. That's right. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And that actually triggers in me one of the phrases that I hear so much at the entrepreneurial conferences and all that is, you know, everybody says, well, I want to create value. And I think that's bullshit because what they want to do is create a lifestyle that they think they want. And that's number one. You know, and so that creating value means I need to sell you something in order to do that. I have this book. It's called Wanting What You Want. And I said, <laughs> Is that written by Ava Gabor? <laughs> yeah. no, I said, it's an interesting thing, you know, when people say they want something, that they then create a story that they're not doing it for themselves. Right. They're saving right. the planet. You know, they're <laughs> yes. saving the planet and everything else. And I said, you have to realize that there's two parts to your statement. One is what you want, and the reason why you want it is because you want it. Right. But then you have to make up a story for it to be socially acceptable. Right, absolutely. Or you think you do, you think you do. Right, absolutely. I find that really interesting because yes, it's you think that you have to, you know, and that all these people who are creating value are altruistic. And there is nothing the matter with fulfilling your own needs and your own desires, as of course, as long as you're not taking advantage of and abusive and well, all, all that stuff that doesn't fly, whether you're an employee or the boss. Yeah. But I think there's nothing the matter with admitting, well, yeah, I'm doing this because I really want to do it. Yeah. And it's fun and fulfilling for me, you know, and that's what I want to do. You know, the value proposition is a sales proposition. Well, here's the thing, and I wrote uh, when I went to college my senior year, the thesis, you had to have a senior year thesis, and I did it on Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations. 
It was very, very interesting about Adam Smith. You know, he was a Scot. And the book was actually on commission, a group of merchants in Edinburgh wanted to actually create a thesis for the government of the United Kingdom, Great Britain, that they would start lowering the tariffs and actually allow trade to move in and out of England without tariffs. And Adam Smith was the person who went to it. But he wasn't an economist because the word didn't actually exist. The book came out in 1776, so big things were on the move in 1776. But he was actually, the title, they've changed it in the academic world, but he was a professor of moral philosophy. Mm -hmm. I was in Glasgow on a trip over to the UK, and I went to the cemetery where Adam Smith is buried. And on the tombstone, it's Adam Smith, such and such date to such and such date, the author of The Theory of Moral Sentiments. So everybody knows Adam Smith for Wealth of Nations, but the book that, I guess, if you had it put on your gravestone, it probably meant more to you, or it meant more to the people who did it. It's very interesting, the two paragraphs, the paragraph that opens The Wealth of Nations and the paragraph that opens The Theory of Moral Sentiments on the Wealth of Nations ones, it's that... It is not out of kindness that the butcher, the baker, actually creates the product and service. They do it out of their own self-interest. You know, In the theory of moral sentiments, he writes that in spite of the fact that all human beings are self-interested, yet we have the capacity imaginatively to put ourselves in another person's place and understand what that person wants and what that person needs. So my sense is that the value creation proposition is part of the sale. Oh, yeah. That you're not going to make a sale unless you have a keen insight into what another person is actually looking for and what they would consider, you know, paying for. So my feeling is that these two things of your own self-interest, but also understanding another person's self-interest go together as the entrepreneurial skill. Absolutely. And of course, I think you just spoke to the essence of negotiating. (laughs) You know, that's negotiation, right? You're going to be a better negotiator if you understand what the other person wants. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to the religious roots of the country that, you know, you could never talk about self, you know, your self-interest, because that was somehow tainted and selfish. So it had to be something that seemed to be more morally elevated. I want to bring you value when, as you said, and I completely agree, it's a sales proposition. So there's a test in society, you know, that people grow up and their parents take care of them and then they're in the school system and then they get out into the marketplace. And there's this test maybe that you have to be able to go through other people's thoughts about what you're doing and get to the other side. And that really proves that you're an entrepreneur because you can be talked out of it by people who say, well, why don't you devote your life to this? Or why don't you devote your life to that? You know, not go into the grubby marketplace and make a dollar. And I'm wondering if there's a kind of a test there that only the true entrepreneurs will ignore what other people think about the activity or think about committing your lifetime to this and you get to the other side and you realize, okay, all I have to really deal with is myself. (laughs) Well, you know, I think that 
there are people who are doing things that are innovative and interesting and all of that who aren't entrepreneurs. And they, in fact, like being in a structure that affords them the opportunity, whether it's being surrounded by equipment, by potential helpers, things that can help them actualize ideas and explore without the responsibilities of owning a business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, thank goodness there are people like that. So, you know, I think it's an interesting proposition because I think entrepreneurs intrinsically aren't, how can I say this? It's hard to articulate because it's not demeaning to say that someone is an employee and their goal is, I want to know I'm getting a paycheck. Mm -hmm. I've got a lot of support around what I'm doing. And I couldn't do this myself, whether they could or not. Their perception is that they couldn't do it themselves and that they want to devote their lives to whatever that thing is. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing the matter with that. No, no. Neither of us could get where we are unless we had really good, we call them team members in coach, you know, because we put the emphasis on that they have a unique ability that we can, to a certain extent, test for, you know, we have certain outside tests that can be used that kind of indicate that the person, you know, if it's like a detailed follow-through position, mm -hmm. there are tests that can actually indicate that the person has that instinct. They like dealing with details. They like systematically following through and completing things. That would not describe me. I mean, that would not. <laughs> More me. <laughs> no, but it's important to know. And you're born with this. You weren't educated into it and you can't be educated out of it. It's just the way things are. But I think that the thing that I notice is that entrepreneurs will emerge whether you like it or not. Entrepreneurs, probably it's a percentage of people born who have a nervous system or they have a way of looking at things. And I think that it goes to a tolerance for ambiguity that we started the discussion with here today, where other people need a certain amount of certainty regarding, you know, their income and, you know, what their activities are going to be in the future. They want the certainty that this has been tested out by many other people before they're entering into the activity. I think you're right. I think there's another possibly equally important factor to consider, and that is a certain dislike of people telling you what to do. Yeah. I remember I was in art class. This is like fourth grade. And, you know, I was a pretty good drawer from the time I was even preschool. I could always draw well. So I used to draw all the time in class. So Mrs. Turney comes with her art cart into class and we were supposed to be doing crayon resist. If you remember what that was, that, you know, you, the wax of the crayon wouldn't take the watercolor. And so you do this stuff. It had no interest to me at all. So I kept drawing the stuff I was drawing. And at that time, you probably remember Davy Crockett, mm -hmm. you know, and so I was drawing images of the battle at the Alamo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, was, that's what I wanted to do. And Mrs. Turney said, where's your crayon resist? And I said, well, I'm doing this. And she said, I gave you an assignment. And I said, yeah. And I finished it. There it is. But this is what I want to do. And she said, you either do what I tell you to do or you do nothing and sit there with your hands folded. So I clasped my hands and sat there and didn't do the assignment. Mm -hmm. 
even as a kid, I thought, well, this is art class. I'm creating some art. Mm -hmm. Leave me alone. <laughs> you know, let me do what I want to do. Yeah. I'm not hurting anybody, you know. But I think that this is a dynamic that goes on, you know, continually. I mean, any society on the planet and any given time on the planet, there's a point where your individual life collides, you know, if you're destined for a path like the two of us have taken throughout our lifetime, there are certain coming to grip situations with other people. That are defining. That are defining, yeah. What I say is you either bet on them or you bet on yourself. There's a bet that actually takes place. Yeah. And most people bet on the system. They won't bet on themselves. You're right. I tended to get along either great with my teachers, some of whom I had contact with years after school. I returned to Akron. It's funny, I remember going back to Akron 30 years later. I mean, I went there regularly, but I was with my wife and somebody is yelling my name at the shopping mall. And it was my eighth grade teacher, which was at least 30 years before. And I went up to her and said hi to her and she was really great. And Margaret said, you remembered him from eighth grade? When did you see him last? And she said, back then. <laughs> and because she was one of the teachers that encouraged me. Mm -hmm. And she was fabulous. She was really smart. Mm -hmm. She had a great sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And she was very open and not squashing kids' expression. Yeah. And when I was in college, we had to do an assignment. And the assignment was, you know, tell the similarities and differences between two newspapers. So I did the Wisconsin State Journal and the New York Times. And talked about how the New York Times, you could fold it into quarters and still read it as you're strap hanging on the subway. So the layout of the paper was determined mm -hmm. by how people actually consumed it, which I thought was really interesting because I never thought about that before as I was researching. Mm -hmm. And I thought about, you know, the time of day it was delivered. The New York Times comes out early in the morning and sort of sets up your day as opposed to Wisconsin State Journal, which gets delivered an hour or so before dinner, you know, and so all these dynamics. The professor and I didn't get along. So I'm passing him on Bascom Hill and he says to me, well, you might like to know, Jeff, that you got the lowest grade in the entire class on your final exam. And I smiled and said, wow, thank you. And he said, thank you. What do you mean, thank you? I told you you got the lowest grade. I said, no, you made me distinctive. <laughs> it's really hard, you know, to stand out when you're somehow in the middle. But whether you're really up or really down, somehow you're distinctive and you stood out. Mm -hmm. And he hated that. Now, I knew he had it out for me the whole semester. Yeah. And I wasn't going to give him the satisfaction of getting me on that. And I, in fact, thought that learning how a newspaper was folded and what was the genesis of that actually was valuable knowledge. Oh, yeah. So there are always those people along your path in life that try to block you. Mm -hmm. Because as much as you like a certain kind of freedom, they thrive on restriction because that means control. Yeah. It's going on 30-year relationship with Kathy Colby, who created the Colby profile system. Her father was very interesting. Her maiden name is Wunderlich. So the Wunderlich test was a test that was created for the U.S. military. 
to sort out whether people were going to be leaders or followers. Okay, and it's essentially an IQ test, and it's used today. I mean, Wunderlich is still a very well-known test. She had a falling out with her father because she felt that IQ was not an indication of any future success. It was actually a capacity to take tests that presented with a certain test, you will do well on the test if you have a high Wunderlich score. Okay, so she said that she didn't feel that it had any impact in the outside world that somebody could get a very, very high test on her father's test and wouldn't indicate anything regarding whether they'd be successful in the world as a result of taking this test. So she created another test, which is called the Colby Profile. And what it does, it said, left to your own devices, how do you most effectively take action to get a result? That's the whole thesis of the Colby that if you're just permitted to organize yourself the way you want to, what's the way you choose to actually get to a result as successfully and as quickly as possible? And I saw the relevance of it right off the bat because it seemed to me that it was designed for Jeff Madoff. It was designed for him, okay? And what I would say by that is that probably all the teachers that you had that you really liked and you got along with, they said, Jeff, this is kind of the result we want you to get to, but it's kind of up to you how to get there. Well, yes. But the art teacher, she wasn't even thinking about you getting the route. She wanted you to buy into her method. Exactly. Exactly. So that raises an interesting question to you, Dan, because you're dealing with a classroom of people metaphorically, all of whom are entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. all of whom share some of these traits that we're talking about. There's pretty good overlaps for large numbers of people, yet you're directing them and getting them to buy into a method Mm -hmm. that quite possibly in other aspects and areas of their lives, they would push away. Mm -hmm. So how do you herd those people because it's like having a whole classroom full of people who are want to be highly individualized. Mm-hmm. So how do you enlist their efforts to help them help themselves? Because I know that's mm-hmm. part of the goal of, of strategic coach. So what are the challenges you have with those kinds of personalities when everybody in the room has that kind of personality? Yeah, I mean, I've learned a lot because I've been doing it for, you know, pushing 50 years now. And the big thing is it has to be done fast, okay? Tell me what you mean by that. Well, when you give them instructions to think something through, well, let me start at a deeper level. What they're thinking about is something in their life, okay? So the first way you get them, this is not an abstract exercise. I'm going to ask them, you know, here's an example. We have a time system, in coach, which is called free days, focus days, and buffer days. What I observed, I said, is that entrepreneurs are actually closer to professional performers. If you think about professional performers, actors, or professional athletes, entrepreneurs are actually closer in what you do to entertainers. And that would include athletes these days because they're part of the entertainment business. So they have a different time system in the entertainment world than the regular world. It's not weekdays, weekends. It's not work hours from such and such. It actually starts that there's a performance that pays the bills. 
And that performance can be an hour, two hours, three hours, uh, you know, depending on whether it's live or whether it's, you know, captured on video or it's captured on audio. But you have to be 100% focused. You have to be 100% energized there. And if you do it right for, you know, maybe four or five hours of focused work, you can equal the income of people who work solidly for a month, day in and day out. You don't get paid for time, you get paid for results. So I said, that makes your whole world different. You're paid for results, not paid for time. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna work on something. So one of the exercises, I just created it this morning, so it'll be used this week. And I said, so we have three kinds of days. We have those focus days, which are performance days. Then you have another day, which is kind of a rehearsal or preparation day. Okay, so it's backstage day, no performance that day, but you're getting ready for a performance. And then you have another day when you're not doing anything at all because you're rejuvenating. So we call them productivity days, preparation days, and rejuvenation days. So, you know, actors do this, athletes do this. If they played every day of the year, they would be worn out, they'd be injured. So I said, now given the COVID over the last 13 months, or 14 months now, I said, how have you changed your free days as a result of most of your work being by Zoom and not traveling? And then your productivity days, how have you changed those and your preparation days? And your team is now virtual for most people, it's virtual, you're not with the team members. And they do that and then I say, okay, so what are the changes that you've made now that are really good changes that you made because of the last year and the benefits of it, you're not giving back when you go back to in-person. If it goes back to in-person, you're not giving back the benefits you got to the way you produce, the way you prepare, and the way you rejuvenate yourself. So they write that down. So what gets them is that I'm not really talking about my method, I'm talking about their life. So everything they write in the little boxes, I have all these little boxes, what they're writing down is their actual thoughts about their life. And then I say, now, how can you improve this even further by having who's do some of the things that you used to do house with? So for free days, focus days. And I say, okay, uh, three insights that you had while you were doing this exercise. And they write down their insights and then they go in and talk about it. But the thing that I've anchored everything in, Jeff, and I hadn't seen it so clearly until you ask the question, I anchor everything in their life. They're the expert on their life. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that makes all the difference because you're not getting them, as you said, to buy into a method as much as going back to self-interest again. Yeah. This will help you accomplish what you want to accomplish. Yeah, and people don't see, you know, when you're going through it. It's hard to play fully and see yourself playing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very, very hard. So you need people. I mean, Pavarotti couldn't read music. You know, I don't know if you ever saw a documentary on Pavarotti. He couldn't read music at all. And he had a music teacher when he would be in Milan or he would be in, you know, New York, depending on where he's doing. He had his music teacher there and his music teacher would just take him through the scales and everything else and have him sing songs. He said, no, 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 you're off. And here's this guy who can't sing a note is telling Pavarotti 
you're off. You're off. Here, let me go over that again. Say it. Can't you hear it? You can. You can hear it. And Pavarotti was just like a six-year-old boy. He was just going through, you know, and he would do that. But then, you know, he'd get out on stage and he was the master of the universe and everything like that. So my sense is that I, I've tried to create a zone where I can reflect back their experience that was disorganized in an organized way. And they can see how they could improve that performance if they did it again. Well, you know, it's interesting when you're talking about Pavarotti not being able to read music. Ralph Lauren can't sketch. So it plays into the who, not how, in the sense that it's not like he yeah. learned how to sketch. He had sketchers. That's right. He hired people <laughs> to sketch. You know, Give me some sketchers. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it's the same with me. I have really good basic art skills. But I made a decision, you know, when we started Coach, that the future was going to be in computer graphics because we, we started where we were starting to produce materials in the late 80s. We were a Mac company right from the beginning. We had Apple right from the beginning. And everything I could see is that Apple was going to be master of this graphics universe. You just had a sense that Microsoft wasn't going there or anybody else really wasn't going there. My first employee was actually a 16-year-old who knew graphics, but he didn't know the basics of graphics. He didn't know composition. He didn't know type. You know, he didn't have any sense for color or anything like that, which I do. I have all those skills. But I said, this is the end of my art career as far as developing any skills in this area. I can sketch out basically what I want the person to start with, and then they do it. And, you know, and I told him about copy fitting, and you know, I'd had a really good experience with copy and text, and when in doubt, Helvetica. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting because this directly relates, well, directly relates to actually everything I've done, you know, because when I started in the film business, you know, I work with cinematographers, learned how to shoot and all of that. But, you know, I didn't know the technical aspect of that. I had the taste. I could compose a shot, you know, through the viewfinder. I could tell and learned how to direct for lighting also and all those things. And like you with the drawing, it's great to know, have a certain functioning knowledge because then you can direct somebody else as opposed to, and this is something that speaking as a creative person working for clients, the last thing you want to hear is, oh, that doesn't work for me. Okay. So what would you like me to do? Ah, you know, it just doesn't work. No, I heard that. I just want to understand what do you mean so we can fix the problem that you have? What doesn't work? You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, you need to give actionable direction. Yeah. The way you can give actionable direction is know what you're talking about. Yeah doesn't mean you've mastered how to do it. You know, where we've come now, you know, here in the 2021, I produce now a small book every quarter. I've got a whole team that is part of my team. We're actually doing a video right now on how we put a book together. I can do a book a quarter in 35 hours of my time, mm -hmm. start to finish. You know, when I get the idea in 35 hours of my time later, the book goes off to print. And I just show how over a series of five or six years, every quarter I get back four or five more hours because I've created shortcuts. Mm -hmm. But what I've created shortcuts is with skilled people. 
So I have a cartoonist. So the books, as you know, all have cartoons. And I work with a cartoonist who's 1,200 miles away and has always been that away. And the programs are so good now. And on Zoom, it's really great because he can actually draw the page in rough form. You know, you have two pages. And I said, yeah, yeah. And by this time, we have about 20 different kinds of pages. And I said, not that we have them numbered, but I says, you know, it's kind of like a number 13 page. And he says, oh, yeah, right. He says, okay, we do that. And there's it's a composition. So there's like 20 different compositions. And I said, yeah, but not quite. And we change this and change this. And he's doing all the drawing while I'm doing this. And he's actually writing right on the screen. I can see it right in front of him. I swear now that's all that's needed because I've already created text for him that what the text is that's being portrayed in the cartoon. And he'll come back the next day and it's finished artwork. It's almost finished artwork, you know. And that's how good the technology is these days that he can really do it. So what I strive for is that he's passionate about computer technology, graphics technology, and he's a very good cartoonist. He's an excellent cartoonist. So what I do, I want him to get better and better and better and better so that I haven't done any sketching for him in about two or three years. I can just give him... You know, I said, this, it kind of looks like this. And he says, yeah, I got We have one thing, it's called a Bruegel scene. And, you know, Bruegel, who was the, you know, Dutch or German or Belgian, whatever the word is, but he's got these mad peasant scenes, you know, riot scenes and everything else. I said, yeah, I said, it's kind of like an angry Bruegel. And I'll come back the next day and he'll have this angry scene. It's got 50 people in it and they're all shouting and everything like that. We can talk about this as part of the, process why you chose to be an entrepreneur because you can involve yourself in activities and create activities that nobody's ever done before with skilled people who never would have done this if they hadn't been working with your ideas i'm jeffrey madoff along with my podcast partner dan sullivan thanks for listening to part one of our conversation today join us for part two landing shortly If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.